Yes, a long time ago now, John Wesley had some very, very wise things to say about how we should use our money. And um, I've, I've taught on this in my day job, and I've never actually had an opportunity to preach on it. So I'm really looking forward to doing that today. I've actually titled this discussion point, John Wesley, Tele-Evangelists and Money. Because it struck me, you know, when I read the life of John Wesley, how similar he was to the modern day tele-evangelists. So a little bit about John Wesley first. Of course, there have been plenty of books written about John Wesley. And um, obviously I don't have time in our context today to get into too much detail. But he lived... For most of the 18th century, born early in the 18th century in a place called Epworth. You might know where that is, Helen. That's in, uh, I think it's in Lincolnshire in, um, in the UK. He died in 1791 in his 87th year. He was the 13th of 19 children who were born to Samuel and Susanna. Only nine survived. I think he was number, yeah, he was number 13. His dad was an Anglican priest, and he, of course, became ordained as an Anglican priest too. Samuel, his dad, was not particularly well-liked, apparently. I don't really know why. I haven't done enough reading to find that out, but I suppose, you know, not all Anglican ministers are well-liked. Uh, maybe he told too many people what they didn't want to hear. I don't know. But uh, his mum, Susanna schooled all the children in religion and morals, which were very important subjects back in the day. He never married. And um, I don't know, you don't, you don't actually see much reference to much about his private life in a lot of the uh, biographies of, of Wesley because he was such a public figure. But with his brother Charles and with George Whitfield, he founded the Methodist Church. Well, I think it's interesting that it was really by accident because a bit like Luther had no intention to start the Reformation. He just wanted some debate to happen within the Catholic Church. Uh, Wesley and his brother Charles and Whitworth too, they didn't set out to actually establish a new denomination. Uh, Wesley simply wanted the Anglicans to come alive to the Holy Spirit. And he remained an Anglican for his entire life. Even though he actually established a whole apparatus, a whole institution that existed outside the church. And eventually he wasn't even allowed to preach inside an Anglican church. He used to actually preach outside and the people would just form great crowds outside the churches. And he would preach to them. A little bit of um, trivia as well. As far as we know, he's the first person who coined the phrase in print, agree to disagree. And that, that phrase arose because he and George Whit Whitfield ended up having totally divergent views on some matters of doctrine. Uh, Whitfield was a very strong Calvinist and he believed in predestination and pre-ordination um, that, that God actually chose who was going to be saved. And that wasn't actually a matter of individual choice. And Wesley, he took the opposite view. But these two men remained friends throughout their lives. 
because they agreed to disagree. So let me tell you a little bit about some modern day televangelists and uh, then we'll um, have a look at how Wesley in the way in which he operated was somewhat similar to them. I did a little bit of research and discovered that there are about 90 who would be classified as tele-evangelists in the world today. Most of them are American and that they're characterised by having uh, worldwide um, fame or notoriety depending on your perspective. Most of them of course have television programs that are now broadcast right around the world through satellite television. Uh, many of them have a potential audience of about 3 billion people or more. So they have the capacity for enormous influence. And there are some like um, Kenneth Copeland and Crefo Dollar, uh, Kenneth W. Hagen, he's now dead, but there's four or five who have had enormous influence on people around the world. Brian Houston is on the list. He's the only Australian. He's actually a Kiwi, but he's the only Australian on the list. And it's interesting, isn't it, that um, Hillsong have just started their own TV channel just this last week, in fact. And uh, Brian, of course, has been on international uh, television channels for some years now. The thing they have in common, the, the 90 of them is, and this might sound a bit silly, they preach a lot. <laughs> like, that's their job. And uh, many of them have daily programs on TV. They sell products and they accept offerings. And if you ever listen to them, you'll find that, that usually about seven or eight minutes of their pro program, which usually runs for half an hour, is actually advertising product. And um, they make a lot of money by selling product. And usually they accept offerings. I, I like um, Joseph Prince. Because he actually says at the end of his program, we believe that your tithe belongs to your local church. And so anything that you offer to his ministry, he accepts as an offering over and above what you're tithing to your local church. And the other thing that many of these televangelists have in common is that they do travel a lot. A bit like movie stars and um, rock stars. They have to connect with their audience. Most of them have their own jets. I don't think Brian Houston has got one yet. But many of them at least, they actually travel in jet aircraft that they own themselves. And you might think, well, John Wesley wrote a lot of hymns and uh, he preached to a lot of people, but he was quite like them in many ways because he preached a lot. <laughs> That's what he did. He was actually known as the horseback evangelist. He sold products. He used to print little tracts that were based on his sermons and he sold a lot of those and, of course, accepted offerings. He travelled fast, not by jet, but by horse. And in his best year, he cleared 1,400 pounds. Now, it's, a, it's actually quite difficult to make a comparison with what that would be equivalent to today. Um, there's a whole range of reasons for that. It's actually a very complex comparison. But me being an economist, I spent some time making a comparison that I think is a fairly um, sensible one, and that is to actually look at what £1,400 meant in terms of its multiple of what you needed to live comfortably for a year. So back in the 18th century, a family 
would need between um, 40 and 100 pounds a year to live comfortably. That is not, not to have an outrageous lifestyle, you know, not movies every week and all that sort of thing, but just to live at a reasonable level of comfort. It was about 30 to 40 pounds for someone who was single and up to about 100 pounds for a family. And of course that expense would have included some servants and they typically cost between about two and five pounds a year. Uh, your footman might cost you eight pounds a year. So on that basis, his best year netted him around about one and three quarter million dollars in, in today's Aussie dollar terms. So he wasn't doing too badly, was he? The interesting thing about him though, was that before he came to fame, before he was making lots of money, he was living on around 30 pounds a year. I think it was 27 pounds a year. And uh, he made a decision that no matter how much money he was able to generate through his activities as a preacher, through selling these tracts and accepting offerings and so on, he would continue to live on 30 pounds a year. And when he actually died, he didn't have any assets other than the money that he was carrying with him in his saddlebag and in his pockets. He had around about 10 pounds. So he managed during his lifetime actually to give away almost everything that he had earned. In fact, 30 pounds of 1,400 pounds is about um, 2%, isn't it? Or thereabouts, it's not very much. So one of the things he did differently to many of us today was he gave away an awful lot more than any of us do. But there's so much about his approach which is similar to that of the modern televangelists. And that's one of the reasons why you don't actually hear me criticising televangelists because they're actually not doing anything very differently to what people like John Wesley and uh, George Whitfield did. And these were guys who actually brought about really significant spiritual change in millions and millions of people. And I'm quite convinced that if Wesley was alive today, instead of riding a horse, he'd be in a jet plane because he wanted to get the message out to as many people as he possibly could. He'd be utilising satellite television as well. However, I doubt that he would live in such a big house as some of the tele-evangelists do, and he'd probably be giving away 95% or more of his income. But that's not to be critical of the modern tele-evangelists. They've got to sort out the way they live with God, not with Rod St. Hill. <laughs> anyway, so that's the connection, I think, between Wesley and the latter-day tele-evangelists. He wrote a fabulous sermon, and um, I've actually seen whole books written on his sermon, but the sermon itself is it's less than 2,000 words. And it was actually based on Luke 16.9. I say unto you, make yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that's money, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. This was really about... The, uh, there was a parable that Jesus told and he was saying, use your money to make friends. And Wesley uses that as the basis to present three rules for using money. 
And the first which might surprise you is that he said, gain all you can. That's why he sold tracks. He was selling his tracks as a means of making money in his trade, and his trade, of course, was preaching. He went so far as to say it was actually our bounden duty to gain all the money we can, to work hard, to use all the gifts that God has given us and amass as much money as we can. He says, gain all you can by common sense. That's interesting. God gave us common sense. There's a few people around who need to know that. And by using in your business all the understanding which God has given you. So use everything that God has given you in order to make money. There's one constraint on the rule, and that is do no harm to yourself or to others. So Wesley set out some conditions under which you would gain or you can. So he said, don't undertake work that is injurious to your body. And of course we know that at that time there was plenty of work that was injurious to the body, although perhaps medicine wasn't aware of it, but black lung disease in coal miners, for example, coal miners would almost always die a, a ghastly death because they contract these diseases through the dust in the coal mines. And there were many, many other jobs, particularly from about the middle of the previous century through to the late, um, eight, sorry, during the 18th century, uh, there was the Industrial Revolution and there were a lot of very unhealthy jobs that were created. But he said, don't take on work that will be injurious to your body. But the other thing he was very um, articulate about was don't do anything that's injurious to your soul or to your, to your mind. And he um, collected under that, that idea a range of things that he regarded as sin. Those things which were directly forbidden in the Word of God. So uh, brothels are out, all right? That's not a legitimate way of making money. And uh, slavery's out, although slavery, of course, has had a very interesting history. It's sinful. And don't do anything that the government declares to be illegal. All right, so don't go and set up an ice factory. Well, ice made from water, yes. But the other ice, the illicit drug ice, don't go and set up an ice factory because when Wesley says gain all you can using all of the faculties and all of the gifts that God has given you, that's not a license to sin. And it's not a license to do harm to yourself and it's not a license to do harm to others either. So your work should always be work that, yes, um, stretches you, uses all the skills and all your energy, but it must do no harm to yourself or to others. I'm just thinking here, I'm just thinking, because I, I kind of rearranged some of Wesley's thinking, because if I was marking his sermon as a student assignment, I would say, I think you should put this idea first. Because later on in his sermon, he talks about the need to provide for yourself and uh, your household. So one of the reasons why you gain all you can 
you so that you can provide appropriately for your household. So provide things that are needful for yourself. Food to eat, raiment to put on, that's your clothing, and whatever nature moderately requires for preserving the body in health and strength. And provide these for your wife. Lucky, isn't she? Provide these also for your wife, your children, your servants or any others who pertain to your household. So he's actually saying before you do anything else with what you have gained, make sure you're looking after yourself and your whole household. Back then, of course, the household included um, servants. There'd normally be a maid, a cook, and a footman. Three was fairly typical. And that budget that you, that you can see up there, that you won't be able to read anything on it because the font's far, far too small, but that's a page from a budget of a household in around 18, uh, 1750, around the middle of the 18th century. That household's budget came to, I think it was a bit under 400 pounds. So that was a, a household of some substance. And you can see down there the payments that are made for, for some clothing, um, payments to the maid. I think their maid was paid four pounds a year, which is a pretty good salary for a maid. I think they had half a day a month off. No such thing as a five day work week or a 37 and a half hour working week back then. But one of the things that was very expensive in those days was clothing. And certainly it wasn't until uh, later in the Industrial Revolution where, where clothing became standardised and was made with uh, machinery that it became um, much, much cheaper. So an average household earning somewhere between 40 and 100 pounds, you might pay 10 or 12 pounds for a good suit. That's why, of course, your clothes tended to be passed on down the generations because they were so expensive. So Wesley says, look after yourself, your family and those who work for you in your household. And I think this is a really important point because he's actually saying do that before you do anything else. Look after those in your household before you do anything else. And of course we know in, in uh, 1 Timothy where we, we are told to look after our families. Not to do so is to make us worse than infidels. And I, I can remember years ago, maybe you also remember there was this trend in the church to live by faith. And I remember meeting someone at our church, we were in New Zealand at the time, he had his family with them and they were unbelievably, they looked cold, it was the middle of winter, they had these thin, poorly made clothes on that I presume they bought at a $2 shop and he walked up to me and proudly said, I live by faith. And I looked at him and his family and said, no you don't, you live on social welfare. There wasn't any faith in what he was doing and in fact I live by faith even though I work for a job and I'm paid an annual salary, I, I have to have faith that my salary will still be there two weeks from now. Wesley's saying, you don't live by faith. You go and work and use everything God gave you, gain all you can, look after yourself and your household, and then save all you can. That was his second rule. Save all you can. He was saying, 
The reason why you work is actually to bring God glory, not to feather your own nest and to live the high life. In fact, I think he probably overdid it. And maybe he could because he was single. And see, when you're on your own, of course, you can make a lot of sacrifice because you're making the choice for yourself. Your children don't necessarily have the opportunity to make the choice. So I wouldn't actually recommend that if you've got a family that you try to live on 2 to 5% of your annual income. In fact, you couldn't do that today because of the way our whole society is arranged. It would be, I think, literally impossible unless you are earning a very, very high income indeed. But these are a couple of quotes from his sermon. Despise delicacy and variety and be content with what plain nature requires. Well, that might mean we shouldn't watch too much on Netflix or Stan, I don't know. but <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what he would have thought of that. But what, what I thought he was saying is, don't get hooked on ostentation, ostentatious consumption. So don't get hooked on the idea that I have to have everything, otherwise I don't have a complete identity. He goes on to say, do not waste any, of, any part of so precious a talent, that's money, merely in gratifying the desire of the eye by superfluous or expensive furniture in costly pictures, painting, gilding, books, in elegant rather than useful gardens. Well, I don't know. We haven't got an elegant garden. It's supposed to be useful, but we haven't picked very much from our garden lately. So what he's saying here is, that the purpose of money is not for you to satisfy wants and desires way, way, way beyond your basic needs. Save all you can. Save all you can. So gain all you can without harming yourself or others. Look after yourself and all your household. Right? Give them what they need for a decent but not outrageously ostentatious lifestyle, then save everything that you can. And what do you do after you've saved it? Well, he said there's no point, absolutely no point in saving if you don't do something with it. And this is where he comes to his third rule, which is simply give all you can. So gain all you can, save all you can, and then give all you can. And his primary reason for saying that was that we are stewards. If you go right back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, you will see that when God gave humanity dominion over everything that he had created, he actually made us stewards. He didn't actually transfer ownership to us, but he gave us the role of stewards of all that he had created. And Wesley understands that we are stewards not only of the resources around us, but we're also stewards of our own bodies and our own minds. We're stewards of all of the capacities that God placed in us. And that includes the capacity 
to gain all we can. To be a good steward of the capacity to gain, we have to give away as much as we can. So his primary reason for arguing that we should give all we can is that we are stewards of everything we have. He talked about our saving as overplus. He didn't use the term um, saving. That's perhaps more, more modern, but he used this word overplus. So if you've got something left over, we'd use the word surplus today. It means the same thing. Great biblical principles here. He says, what do you do with your overplus first? You do good to them that are of the household of faith. So this... This is about uh, supporting the local church. This is about supporting people in the local church, whether or not they're actually regularly going and whether or not they're being supported through whatever mechanisms the local church has to provide um, charity or other, other help. The, the local church won't always be aware of the specific circumstances of any particular individual. If you are, Wesley would say, it's your duty and obligation to give to, it might just mean providing somebody with, with a meal, something as simple as that. Do good to those that are of the household of faith. That starts in the local church. The local church should always be focused primarily on benefiting and on the welfare of its people. We, we had an opportunity to do some good to someone of the household of faith last week and we actually don't have much of an overplus right at the moment for, for various reasons. But I had in mind we needed to give these people $400 because they needed um, to do a, a short trip and they didn't have the money to do it. And I, I thought, well... Well, $400 won't go a long way, but I felt the Lord had impressed $400 on my heart. And we didn't actually really have it in our bank accounts. What are we going to do? Anyway, the Lord reminded me that I had some New Zealand dollars in my filing cabinet from, that were left over from our last trip there. And I counted it up and there was $398 in New Zealand. And so I put it in an envelope and I gave because they had to go to New Zealand, this person had to go out of the country for, for visa purposes. New Zealand is the closest overseas country, so they just had to go out of Australia and spend a week or so in New Zealand, then they can come back. So I actually did have an overplus. It was sitting in my filing cabinet, and uh, we were able to give it to them to help. And I, I say that, um, look, that the only boast we have, of course, is in the God who made it possible for us to have the gain and then have that saving in the first place. But we always need to be aware that there will be folk in the household of faith who are in need of one kind or another and we need to do our very best to make sure that we organise our lives so that we can help. And then Wesley says, if you still have overplus, do good unto all men. So if there's still something left over, then there are literally thousands of good causes outside the local church and outside your, your family and your neighbourhood. There are thousands of opportunities 
that you have to do good unto all men. So lots and lots of people, for example, have compassion children. I know David and Ainsley have some children. Jeanette and I have a couple of compassion children. And that's an opportunity that we have to do good to somebody who's not as well placed as we are to flourish in this life. So that's the principle of giving all you can. We're stewards. The fact that we've got some money in the bank is actually not something we can boast about because of what we've done, because of our hard work, because it's actually God that makes it possible for us to do that work in the first place. Well, it's interesting, I think, the word tithe does not appear in Wesley's sermon at all. One of the reasons for that was most people didn't tithe at that time. Tithing was a practice which was um, almost universal in the early church and it was certainly maintained for the first few hundred years, maybe even the first thousand years or so after um, the religion of Christianity was established. But because of the way the church um, developed and because of the way the church was using tithes, gradually actually people stopped tithing to the church. So I think this is a really important lesson for you know, modern evangelical and Pentecostal churches that it, it became pretty clear through the ages that the church itself was becoming a very wealthy institution. And so people pulled pull back and by the time of the Reformation, tithing was something which most people didn't engage in at all. And it's really only had its resurgence since about the middle of the 19th century. And now, of course, you go into most evangelical or Pentecostal churches and many of them will actually have, you know, five or ten minutes devoted every, every service to teaching on tithing. And I'm not opposed to tithing at all. In fact, Jeanette and I have tithed for about 25 years, since 1989, actually. And um, we taught our children principles of tithing. But I think it's quite significant that he doesn't talk about tithing. He talks about giving. And, of course, he lived his life in such a way as to demonstrate that tithing could never be seen as the standard, the standard is actually what we would call generosity today. Be generous. Be generous to your own household. Be generous to the household of faith. And then be generous to all people. And if you have a look at the little about us statement about Ignite Life Church Gold Coast Connect Group, that is a mouthful I know, but there's a little statement that says, we believe generosity is as natural to the Christian as breathing. And that is what we believe is God's design. And that's one of the reasons why I love Wesley's sermon so much. There's so much wisdom in it that you don't set out to huff and puff and do this tithing business because suddenly it all becomes legalism. And it is of no value to God. But when you arrange your life, when you understand your role as steward, 
when you use what God has given you to gain all you can, when you look after your household appropriately, then save as much as you can for the purpose of then giving as much as you can, then you've set your life aright in relation to money. Right at the end of the sermon, Wesley suggested four questions we could ask before we make a commitment to spending money. And I actually think these are four pretty good questions that we might want to consider ourselves. So he says, before you undertake an expenditure, calmly and seriously inquire these four areas. The first, and I've condensed them down quite a bit because they go for a few paragraphs. But the first is to ask yourself, am I acting as a steward of my Lord's goods? Bearing in mind his philosophy is, it's all God's. So am I stewarding what is God's anyway, as well as I ought? The second, am I doing this in obedience to his word? That is amazing. You know, a lot of these tele-evangelists that you see on the telly and flying around the globe in their jet aircraft and so on, in relation, say, to healing or personal finances, they'll often say, find the promise in his word and stand on the promise. And Wesley is saying, before you spend, find a scripture that relates to that spending. Now, I reckon that would be pretty good homework for all of us over the next little while. The third is, can I offer up this as a sacrifice to God through Jesus Christ? Can I offer this up? Sorry, can I offer up this as a sacrifice to God through Jesus Christ? In other words, when I make that expenditure, can I honestly say I'm releasing this as a sacrifice with joy in my heart to you, my God, through Jesus Christ. And the fourth, have I reason to believe that for this very work, that is for that expenditure, I shall have a reward at the resurrection of the just. The tele-evangelists often talk about the notion of storing up treasure in heaven. Wesley might have said exactly the same thing today. Before I make a decision to spend, do I have reason to believe that in doing so, I'm actually storing up treasures in heaven? I find that a pretty serious um, set of questions. It's even confronting because a lot of time I don't even think about my expenditure, that I don't do it, as it were, purposefully. But yet, if you accept the notion that our capacity to gain is directly attributable to what God has placed within us, then we really need to take seriously the decisions that we make about our spending. Now Wesley wrote lots of hymns. I don't think he expected us to live sad sack lives, you know, scrimping and saving just so that we can give it away, so that it almost becomes a, a kind of badge of honour because, again, then we're just turning it into 
works and it's of no value to God. And it's something that we need, I think, to embody, to embrace in our way of living daily. So, in summary, this is what he said, and this is what he says right at the end of his sermon. Having first gained all you can, and secondly, saved all you can, and that's after looking after yourself and your family, then give all you can.